Well, I'm excited for Hosea chapter 4. We're going to do the whole chapter in one go, as you probably picked up from the reading. So that's 19 verses in hopefully about 40 minutes. So you can do the math on that, but I'll do my best, okay? Um, So before we get into Hosea chapter 4, there's one place I wanted to, to go into scripture to properly frame the context of this passage. So if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 11, we're going to frame what's going on in Hosea 4 for our interpretation this evening. Romans chapter 11, and we're going to pick it up in verse 17. In Romans chapter 11, as you're turning there, this passage has to do with what we would call the olive tree analogy, the olive tree metaphor. In scripture, specifically in Paul's writing in Rome, when he is talking about the relationship between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, he's trying to articulate the means by which the Gentiles can now partake in the gift of salvation. Because previously, the gift of salvation had been limited only to Jewish believers. And so the people of Israel were the ones who were the people of God. They were the ones who exclusively had relationship with him. And so Paul is unpacking how it's okay that Gentiles can also partake in this free gift. And in order to uh, explain this idea, he paints a picture for us. And in this picture, in verse 17, we get to see how this plays out. So in verse 17, he says, But some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So this is Paul's warning to the Gentile believers that because they are unnatural branches that have been grafted into the tree of salvation, the olive tree, they are getting nourishment from this root, that they shouldn't look with arrogance at the natural branches that were cut off because the same fate can happen to them. That although they've been grafted in, if they are not careful, if they do not abide with God, they can be cut off. So this is a warning that Paul has for the Gentile believers in Rome. And this warning is similar in the warning that whatever is said here in Hosea chapter 4 to Israel as a warning to them to not stray from the faith, we, the Gentiles, should not think that God's grace abounds so plentifully that he's just going to overlook everything we do wrong. What he has warnings for us in scripture, we have to pay attention to them. Paul says later also in Romans that when sin, should we sin more that grace may abound by no means, right? We have to walk carefully in the statutes of God. And one of the problems with the New Testament Jews is they thought that they were going to be in the kingdom of heaven because they were ethnic Jews. They were convinced of the fact that God would not put away his people. He loved them too much to do away with them, despite their idolatry, despite their unbelief. They're the people of God, so they were going to make it in. And so be careful, Christian, that you don't think because you are uh, chosen by God, that you are loved by God, that you are cared for by God, that he's not also holding you to a high standard, that he's not also calling you to holiness, also calling you to righteousness. So here in chapter 4, we see Uh, the apostasy of Israel as they start to stray away from the Lord. This is a specific indictment, as you'll find out, first off on the leaders of Israel, specifically the uh, religious leaders of the time, the priesthood, and also the prophets. These are the ones who were supposed to guide them towards God and commune with God on their behalf. And then it's also an indictment on the people who tolerate and accept leaders who don't hold them up to the standard that God holds them to. So this oracle, although it's specifically for the Israelites, I don't want to misinterpret this and say that this automatically one-to-one translates over to the New Testament for Christians. It's specifically for Israelites, but a lot of the warnings that are true here of the apostasy are a lot of the warnings that we need to be careful of today in the church as well. Okay? So we're going to pick it up in verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. The first thing he says is, hear the word of the Lord. Now, this is the way that you preach. This is the way that you bring the message of the Lord to the people. Hosea is about to say a lot of hard things. And oftentimes when we say hard things to our friends, hard things to others, when you hear a pastor who has to say a hard truth from the pulpit, 
You might get that hard truth on the back end of 20 minutes of excuses or caveats, apologizing for what's about to be said, creating caveats, creating uh, a, a posture as if they are somehow more reasonable than God is, or they are somehow more gracious than God is. But Hosea doesn't do that. He says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. This is the word of the Lord. So Hosea is not going to apologize for any of what he's about to say. Even though it's hard, even though it's going to hurt to hear, he knows they need to hear it, and they need to hear it in order to be in right relationship with their father. And so this is not backing off of the truth. Hosea is not about to take a step back and soften up the blow. He's going to say everything to the full explicit sense in which it needs to be said for the people to be convicted of sins and hopefully, with the Lord willing, that they would then also turn from their sins. Unfortunately, we know that in history, the nation at large does not actually turn from their sins in this regard. But it's not going to stop Hosea from trying to warn the people. And the, the caveat here is when you have to, when you know a truth of scripture and you're sharing God with other people and you know a truth of scripture and someone asks you a question about God, what does the Bible say on this issue? Be careful that you don't try to caveat things that the scripture says because you're worried how a Western mind might perceive those things. Because you're worried how someone might perceive you to be based on the word of God. We stand and fall and live and die by the word of God. We don't make excuses for it. We don't come off as more reasonable or understanding or more knowledgeable or more uh, inclusive than God. God is all loving, all good, all powerful, holy, righteous, just. And his word is a reflection of that. It is all the things that God is. And so when we witness to people, when we share the gospel, when we do apologetic ministry, when we uh, defend the faith against others, don't back off of truths that you know to be true in scripture. And I know that for every single one of us, we might have a different truth that rubs us the wrong way and that we're a little bit wary to share with others, especially if they ask. Our natural inclination is to create caveats, but be careful not to. So the Lord has a controversy. Now, what is the controversy that he has with the people of Israel? Well, he's going to outline this for the next, uh, all the way through the end of verse 19, the controversy he has with the people. But the foundational controversy that he has with them is actually outlined there in verse 1, right? He's telling us what he's going to say, and he's going to unpack it as he goes. The controversy is threefold. He says there is no faithfulness, that there is no steadfast love, and that there is no knowledge of God in the land. In the land is saying that in all of Israel, all these people who he's preaching to, this is the place where it should be, right? These are the people of God where they should have faithfulness. They should have steadfast love. They should have knowledge of God. God has entrusted himself to them. He's given them his law, but there is no knowledge of God, no faithfulness, and no steadfast love. So these are three accusations that God has against his people. Now you will notice that these are three accusations that God personally has within himself. God has complete and total faithfulness towards the people of Israel. But by contrast, they do not have any faithfulness towards God. This is an accusation. God has perfect, steadfast, covenantal love with his people, despite their idolatry. But they don't have it back. They don't have that same steadfast love. God has perfect knowledge of himself, and he's revealed himself in his word to his people. And he's given them in writing both prophets and the, and the written tradition as well, for them to learn from and know about God. And yet they reject his prophets and they have no knowledge of who God is. So this is the indictment against the people. And all of the things here, both faithfulness and steadfast love, the lack of those things could actually be attributed to the root, which is no knowledge of God. If you have a knowledge of God, you will become formed into the image of God, which is to have steadfast love, which is to have faithfulness. You can't produce faithfulness without knowledge of God. You can't produce steadfast love without knowledge of God. If you have knowledge of God, if it soaks into you, if it becomes who you are, you can then, in your outworking, become conformed to who God is and then become steadfast in your love and faithful towards God. So those are the three accusations. But then he continues in verse two and he says, instead of finding these things which I should find, here's what I find instead. There is swearing, there is lying, there is murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So the three accusations are contrasted with the three things that we do find present. The one is swearing. Now this doesn't mean using four-letter words common in the English language. This is swearing by the name of the Lord and saying you'll do something the, in the name of the Lord or as the Lord lives, I will do these things. You'll find this kind of phrasing in the Kings and in Samuel in the Bible 
where, where they say, as the Lord lives, I will do this thing. But these people are taking the name of the Lord in vain, swearing by the name of the Lord, making declarations on the basis of his name, and doing so in a way that is not uh, faithful to God. It's not worshipful to God. God says, Thou, you shall not take my name in vain in his covenant of the law. And so that, but they are doing this. They are swearing. So this is one of the covenants or one of the commandments broken. Another commandment that's broken is lying. He says there is lying in the land. There's malicious use of words to try to get people to be deceived, either so you can have a better business or you can, so you can protect yourself. That's lying. There is murder, the unjust taking of another life for your own, for your own means, right? There's a difference between murdering someone uh, in, a, in a vengeance type sense, which is the sin of murder, and someone who serves in a military context and has to kill someone on behalf of the nation. Even Israel recognized that's not murder. So to murder someone is something that's personal, vengeful. You're taking vengeance on someone. Jesus clarifies the heart disposition of this in the New Testament when he says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. So this is the heart context that he's talking about. But he finds this in the land, both real murder and probably hatred of brothers. And then there's also stealing present. They're taking away wealth from one another. Stealing comes from covetousness. So you got a whole through line of all kinds of commandments being broken in the land. And then the last one is the one we've been talking about, which is adultery. Not only do they have idols that they worship instead of God, which we've been painting the picture of that idolatry is adultery, but also they're probably adulterers, which means if they don't have fear of God, why would they fear his institution of marriage? Why would they be faithful to that? So they're just going to sleep around. And in fact, later in verse uh, 14, you see that there is this kind of uh, promiscuity taking place, but God says he's not going to punish it for reasons that we'll get to later. But there is no knowledge of God. And in the Proverbs, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what we would call biblical wisdom. So if you fear God rightly, if you see him rightly and you view him rightly, you are going to become wise. You're going to become knowledgeable about who God is. Last week, we talked about how God demands your mind, but he doesn't demand only your mind, right? You bring your mind to church, you turn your mind on for God, but it doesn't stop at the intellectual level, right? This is not a theological or academic pursuit. This is a pursuit to know God intimately, which starts at the minimum at the mind, but it must go beyond that. And so he's saying there's no knowledge of me, there's no intimate relationship with me. This is the same accusation that we saw last week. And so the, the disposition here is that the, this controversy is to all inhabitants of the land. And how we can draw this out to our context is that there was no one in Israel who was in a neutral location with God. He says he has a controversy with the inhabitants of the people. God has enemies and we are his enemies. We are by nature the enemies of God. There's no one on this earth who's born in a neutral disposition, who can live their life in a neutral manner and die and then not have picked a side. You are either in outright rebellion against the Lord, an enemy of God, a hater of God, or you are walking in relationship with him and you are loving towards God. Because all people have committed cosmic treason. Even the Israelites were haters of God by nature. But God took them, he redeemed them, he made his covenant with them, and then he walked with them faithfully. But he says that he has a controversy with them, that now they have fallen under his wrath, and here are the reasons why. And I want you to know that today it is also so that there is no person out on earth who is in a neutral relationship with God. And this should inform our witness of people. Either someone is in loving relationship with the Lord, they're walking with him, and we rejoice with those people. We call them brothers and sisters of the family of Christ. Or there are people who don't know God. And it's not like those people are neutral towards God, that those people are in an okay relationship and eventually they'll be fine, right? They're either with God or they are enemies and haters of God. And God has an indictment against all people. And we start in this disposition. So as we evangelize, we should be aware of the fact that people aren't in a neutral place. They are heading somewhere, hating God. And so when we evangelize, we don't evangelize as if they're not in any danger and we're trying to get them to a better place. We're evangelizing to them knowing that if they don't turn from their ways, if they don't repent, if they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a real punishment that is waiting. So this continues then. Uh, and he says they break all, ba- all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. That just means they don't have rules. They don't follow them, right? They break bounds. They don't follow the laws of God. And because of this, bloodshed follows bloodshed. We know in the sin of Jezreel that Israel was very bloodthirsty in its military conquest. So this is just an allusion back to that sin that they had committed as well. But then it continues in verse 3 that because of these accusations, therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens 
and even the fish of the sea are taken away. This is a picture of the whole land feeling the effects of sin. Because Israel is fully indulging in sin, they're fully indulging in idol worship, they're fully indulging with the cult, they're fully rejecting Yahweh, the whole land feels the effects of the sin. This is not something where you can sin and it doesn't affect other people around you. When you sin, everyone feels the effects of it, whether you know it or not. And the animals and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, they all feel the effects of the sin of the nation of Israel. All of God's creation hurts from sin. And not only that, but the the land is also under the curses of God because of Israel's rebellion. So God is going to bring the famine. He's going to remove the plentiful things from the land. He's going to remove the fish and the beasts of the field and things that essentially provide sustenance for the people of Israel. Remember, they were in a state of wealth at this point in time. But God is saying that if they continue in this way, the land is going to feel it. They're going to feel my judgment. And the judgment comes in this way because, remember, they did Baal worship for the sake of trying to preserve their fertility. They did Baal worship for the sake of bringing additional wealth. This is why they worship Baal. So God says, if you want to worship Baal, I'm going to prove to you that he doesn't bring those things. And so he's going to take away the things that they think Baal does bring. And so they'll know that if they worship Baal and they don't get these things, that Baal's actually not the one who provides these things. So the whole land mourns. So this is going to continue then in verse 4. In verse 4 starts kind of a separate idea in the text. So the first three verses is like the main theme, right? The big broad picture. There's no knowledge of God. There's uh, no faithfulness, no steadfast love. But then it's going to continue to unpack. And specifically in verse 4, it pivots to not the whole land, the controversy he has with all the people, but now he's going to zone in on a particular group of people with which he has some specific charges to levy against. This is the priesthood. So he says in verse 4, Let no one contend, let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. Now, if you have an NIV translation, they might have translated like, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. This is an interpretive difference. Some manuscripts say one, some manuscripts say the other. It actually doesn't affect how we interpret the overall passage because both the priests and the people at the end of this passage get the same punishment. But this transition is specifically likely against the priest. So God has said he's had condemnation against the whole land, but now he's going to turn to the leaders of the people, the ones who are charged with their spiritual health, and he's going to levy his charges against them. And this then follows uh, in verse 5. He says, you shall stumble by day. The prophet shall also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother, and my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. So the priests have a specific issue with God, or God has a specific issue with the priests, which is they reject knowledge of God and they appease the people. And in doing so, they don't feed the people, which is their responsibility to do. And then everyone feels the wrath of God. So God is saying that although everyone is guilty of this sin, he's going to go to the source of where it started the people who were supposed to be faithful to preaching the word of God in season and out, he's going to go to them and say that they've not been faithful to their responsibility and therefore it has had this trickle-down effect on the rest of the people. That the rest of the people are anemic, they have no knowledge of God because you, being the priest, reject knowledge. And in Deuteronomy 32-35, we have a similar curse that happens right at the end of the repetition of the law and it goes like this. He says, vengeance is mine, for the time when their foot shall slip will soon happen. And in Deuteronomy 32, 35, when he says vengeance is mine, he's talking about vengeance on the priesthood because the priesthood's foot, which is planted at this moment in time, which is somehow there, is on a slippery slope. And eventually in due time, it shall slip. And so he says here in verse five, you shall stumble by day. This is not an if you're going to stumble. This is not Sometime down the line, you might potentially stumble. God is saying that the priests shall stumble. They shall fall. Their foot shall slip. And this will be the vengeance of the Lord. Stumbling is a picture of them falling flat, right? They're going to fall short of what they're doing. Right now, they are getting by by pretending like everything's okay. But soon, it's going to be exposed that they are frauds. They are not the true priesthood of God. And he says they will stumble by day. This is in contrast to the fact that in daytime, everything's well lit. So you're not going to trip over anything, right? Typically. 
But the priesthood is going to stumble by day, which means they're going to be so confused, they're going to be so oppressed by God that he's going to cause them to stumble in the daytime. This means that their actions in the light that they pretend to do for the Lord in the daytime are going to be their stumbling block. The things that they typically do in worship of God is going to be exposed. So they're going to stumble in the daytime. And then he also continues with this, uh, this parallelism in Hebrew poetry, and he says that you shall stumble in the day, uh, and the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. So prophets and priests are the two uh, different offices that were responsible for uh, being God to the people. The prophets would speak on behalf of God, and the priests would uh, atone for the sins of the people uh, as, inter- as mediators between God and the people. But then he continues uh, with this uh, statement right at the end, and he says, and I will destroy your mother. Now, if you remember to last week, I was kind of unpacking that uh, there's a difference between the children and the mother, and the children represent individuals, and the mother, remember, represents Israel as a whole. And so here, when he says he will destroy your mother, he's not talking about the mothers of the individual priests. Is he like going to go and kill them? He's talking about the priests are the children, and their mother is Israel. So if the priests continue in their unfaithfulness, He's going to destroy their mother being, he's going to destroy the nation of Israel. And the reason that he gives for destroying them is found in verse 6. He says, my people are destroyed by lack of knowledge. So he's going to destroy the nation because the people are already destroyed for their lack of knowledge. They have no knowledge of God, and so they are destroyed. And the reason they have no knowledge of God is it starts with the priests. Because you, being the priests, have rejected knowledge. You see, it's easy for those who are in authority, in power, specifically in spiritual authority, to dilute the message and to dumb it down and to simplify it in a way where it doesn't actually challenge the people to be any different. It doesn't confront the people with the fact that they live in the presence of a holy God who demands righteousness, who demands perfection. When God gave his covenant laws to his people, Moses has to go up on the mountain on his own and the people stay down because they're fearful of God. And then when Moses brings the Ten Commandments down, they actually keep him away from their presence for a time because he's so been saturated in the presence of God that he's offensive to them. He's like bright shining in the day, so different and so other from them. And so the people specifically don't like that when they're confronted with their own sin. They're confronted with the holy God and their disposition towards him. And so the priests over time are guilty of eroding that message, eroding that truth, eroding who, not, who, not, who God is and true knowledge of him. And they're guilty of then kind of simplifying it down to the point where God can say with, with very little caveat, you have no knowledge of who I am. And the reason why the people have no knowledge of who God is is not because the priests have no knowledge of who God is, but it's because the priests reject the knowledge of God. The priests reject what they know to be true to say something that's comfortable to the people, and then the people, by, uh, by trickle-down, then have no knowledge of God because no one's feeding them, no one's teaching them. So this is uh, the, the train of how it happens. Now, this same pattern of events actually happens in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. So if you turn there with me, Romans chapter 1. This is as Paul is outlining the sin of the people and why people are guilty before God. He says these words, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and mammals and animals and creeping things. So the people who reject knowledge of God reject, first of all, God himself. They see God for who he is, and they reject him outright. They say, if this is who God is, we don't want to worship that kind of God. They look at the holiness of God, and they're offended by it, and so they put it away from their minds. They put it away from their hearts. So the, the people of Israel are guilty of, are guilty of rejecting God himself, right? Yahweh, their covenant God, is revealed to them because they've turned away from him. The priests led them down this way, but the people were pretty comfortable with the pr- way the priests were leading them. They weren't being challenged, and they actually really enjoy this because it doesn't call them out to live any better, live any more righteously. But then in the New Testament, we also have rejection of the knowledge of God. In Luke chapter 20, if you turn there, Luke chapter 20, verse 
starting in verse 16. This is Jesus talking about a parable where he talks about the wicked tenants. And he closes off this parable by saying this. He says, he being God will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they being the Pharisees, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and he said, then this, what is this that it is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone else, it will crush him. So Jesus says, when they are confronted with truth, true statements about who God is and who he is, they reject him. And this is written in the Old Testament that the people are going to see Jesus. It's not like they're going to confuse who he is. They're going to see him and they're going to reject him. They're not going to see him and wonder, was that really the guy? Was he close enough? He was right in their face offensive and they see him and they don't like it. And so they reject him. So the Jews, the Israelites in the Old Testament reject God. The Pharisees in the New Testament reject Jesus and who he is. And many people reject Jesus and who he is. This is just one such example. And then in Matthew 15, 14, it says, let, he says, let them alone, talking about the Pharisees. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both of them will fall into a pit. So he says about the Pharisees that they try to lead the people, but because they reject knowledge of God, they're actually blind. They have no idea where they're taking these people. And they're blind. And so the people that they lead and the people that are under them are also blind by default because the Pharisees reject God. So the people have no knowledge of God. And the blind lead the blind and they both fall into a pit. Or you could say more appropriately, they will both fall into the pit in the last day. And so the priests and the people have entered into this kind of truce relationship where the priests dilute the message of who God is to appease the people. And the people welcome the priests. And the priests are now the popular people in town because they don't challenge the people anymore. They don't challenge the Israelites to be any different than they already are. So they enter into this type of neutral peace treaty relationship where the priests don't call out the Israelites and the Israelites are then okay with the priests. Because when you get priests and prophets who do come and who do say hard things, the Israelites typically try to kill them or typically try to put an end to them. And eventually Jesus will lament in the New Testament, New Testament and say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the priests and stones the prophets who I send their way, if only you had repented. And so we know that they would see the people of God, the right message of God, and they would kill them. And so the priests, they don't want to be killed. So they're just going to dilute the message down. They're going to stop telling the people of Israel who a holy and just God is. And the removal of God from worship is not only something Israel is capable of, it's also something that the church is capable of. Remember, I said that the church is no different in the New Testament than Israel by the fact that we're grafted in, but it's still possible for us in the same way that Israel fell for us to fall. And so don't think because you're of the church, because you were born within the family of God, because you fall from a denomination that was once faithful, that because you're in that location, you're safe and protected from God. God is looking for you and you alone to be faithful to him. And so just because Israel is capable of rejecting God in this way, diluting the message and taking on people who will scratch their itching ears, so is the church in the New Testament. This is actually one of the ways in which false teaching is categorized in the New Testament. So the removal of God from worship is something we are also capable of. Specifically, the thing Israel is guilty of is they reject the harsh nature of who God is. They reject a God who's not comfortable also with Baal worship. They reject a God who's not also comfortable with them sleeping around and worshiping with all these other deities as well. They reject a God that's like that because he's harsh. He's jealous. He's not comfortable to be around. And so it is with the church today because we reject the punishment for sin. In a lot of churches, you will find that they are uncomfortable talking about the fact that God has a righteous judgment towards sin. Often, the gospel presentation gets started with, Jesus loves you so much, and he died for you, and he wants you to have a better life. And that's the gospel. But that's not the gospel. So we reject the truth about the punishment of sins, and then the message we're left with gets diluted. And it gets stripped of its power because what are you being saved from? Why did Jesus have to die if you weren't guilty in the first place? And we attempt to be more reasonable than God. We start to say things like that sin that the Bible talks about explicitly in the Old Testament and Paul writes about explicitly in the New Testament, that God's actually cool with that now. Don't worry about it. You know, those are just humans talking about these things. God's actually comfortable with that one now. 
And we pretend as if though we are somehow more reasonable than an all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty, righteous, and holy God. And as the New Testament says, they compare themselves by themselves and their own standards, and so they fall away. And as pastors and spiritual leaders in the church, there are many who are guilty of diluting the truths of God's word and not faithfully teaching those truths in season and out of season. Because many people will comfortably teach truths that people want to hear. They will say things that will get more people in attendance. They will say things that will get more people in the seats. But they won't say anything that actually confronts the sinner and makes them face their reality before God. If you preach in the right way, if you read the scriptures appropriately, and you're not offended almost every single time you open the Bible, you're probably not reading the Bible correctly. Because the Bible is offensive to sinful people who by nature and by flesh hate God. If there's an unconverted person and they sit in a church for any length of time, they should feel the rejection. They should feel confronted. They should feel uncomfortable in that seat. They should not feel regularly welcomed in such a way where they can sit there and it doesn't call them to be any different. Preaching like that is not appropriate because God's presence is holy and righteous and just. And when it confronts sinners, it demands a response. Jesus never bumps into anyone in the New Testament and doesn't demand a response. Every time he has an interaction with someone in the New Testament, whether it be a good response or a bad response, there is a response that happens. He doesn't allow people to be comfortable with the neutral answer. And I think a lot of times today we're comfortable with people having a neutral disposition, a neutral answer towards God. And as people, so this one would kind of go out to you guys, as people, the expectation is not typically to be fed by the truth of God on a regular basis. The expectation typically is for people to be entertained or for people to be uh, comforted or for people to be taught how to live a better life or how to have a better marriage or how to do better at your job or have a more wealthy and prosperous life. The expectation from the people of God should be to be fed with the word of God. And so if you are demanding to be fed with the word of God, you won't accept leaders and teachers who will try to dilute that message down. You'll call them out and you'll get somebody else. And if you're a leader and a teacher and you're in a church and a congregation where the people don't want to be fed, you won't dilute the message so the people are comfortable with you. You'll continue to faithfully preach the message in season and out of season. And so as people in the church, we can't do what the Israelites did, which is to enter into this truce relationship with our spiritual leaders where they don't call us to be any better and we don't challenge them to teach any truth. And in doing so, we, we lack knowledge of God. Eventually, they reject God and we lose knowledge of God and generations down the line that our children will have no knowledge of who God is and what he does. And we will have no knowledge of his saving grace for us because the, really, you can't have the good gospel saving grace of God if you have no confrontation with sin. And one such way in which this plays out in the church uh, with no knowledge of God, I think, especially in our modern day, is the doctrine of the gospel. I could have picked any doctrine when we start looking at this, some of what we call the foundational doctrines of the, the church. But one such doctrine is the gospel, right? In the church today, we're called the evangelical church, which is the church that is primarily focused on the expansion of the gospel, the message of the evangelion in the New Testament. But if you talk to most people who sit in church pews and they go week in and week out and you ask them to their face, tell me what is the gospel, or if you picture in your mind that unbelieving friend who you might at some point down the line want to share the gospel with and picture them tomorrow going up to you and saying, hey, tell me what is the gospel? Would you be able, rightly, to in a good, clear, articulate manner explain what the gospel is to them? If you can't, I would argue that you really should be able to. This is literally what we're about as Christ followers. This is... I mean, if someone asks you to present the gospel, you should be on point number three before they can even try to stop you from saying anything. You should be in it, you should be rolling, and you should be going. And when you have conversations with people, you shouldn't hesitate saying, oh, I'm worried if I'm going to screw up to say this gospel. You should know it so well that it's almost hard to keep it out from your conversations. You see an opportunity for the gospel to land and you hit the gap, right? If you're a talented tailback in football, you don't need this wide gap to open up for you to run a route straight through the line, right? You only need a little bit of space in order to make that play happen, right? And if you're a Christian who's very disciplined with the gospel, you don't need this huge thing to open up for you to walk through it, right? That doesn't take any talent. That doesn't take any skill. It doesn't take any discipline. If you are a Christian, you should be able to see the smallest gap, the smallest opportunity, and you should hit it right away. And so then what is this gospel that we're going to present to people? 
Well, in simple terms, the gospel is first and foremost the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it's more than that. It doesn't start with Jesus Christ and you don't expand any further because the gospel also involves theology, which means truths about who God is. Because if you say you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a Christ follower, but you don't worry about doctrine, what do you believe? Right? Jesus was a real historical person who made real theological claims about himself in the New Testament. Do you believe those claims or do you think that he was just a good moral teacher? So what is the gospel? It is first and foremost Jesus Christ, but it's not just Jesus Christ with no definition. It is Jesus Christ sent to heaven by God, born of a virgin, to live a sinless and perfect life. And when he lives this sinless and perfect life, he has to do so for a reason, which is that he was sent on a mission by his heavenly father to do this because there needed to be a payment for sins. You see, he lives a sinless life because you and I regularly do not live a sinless life. We are regularly at odds with God. And day in and day out, we struggle and toil with sin, but we have no victory because by nature in our heart, we are sinners. We're not people who struggle with sin. We're not people who do bad sometimes and do better other times. We are sinners or we are by nature children of wrath destined for destruction. So Jesus comes and he lives this sinless life and he keeps the law of God perfectly. That law of God that in the Old Testament we look at and we say, there's no way I could keep any of these. I've probably broken three of these this morning alone. And Jesus does this for his whole life, his 33 years on earth. He lives a a life that's perfect and he upholds the law perfectly. And he keeps the law that we couldn't keep. And then not only does he do these things and he lives a great life, but he lives a life in such a way where he's confronted with people who hate him, who recognize what he is, who recognize what he came to do, and they hate him. And so Jesus is willfully delivered up on a cross. He actually, by his own will, lets himself be delivered up to a cross. This is not God who lost a war with people and who couldn't save himself and pull himself down from the cross. He willingly submits himself to be killed by the Roman government and by the Jewish leaders up on a cross. And when he's up on the cross, he gets lifted up and he is crucified and the whole wrath of God gets poured out on Jesus. That is not that Jesus dies and he is a model of a good life to live and a way to submit to authority. Jesus bears the sins of all those who will call on him for salvation. Jesus takes on the wrath of God. And the picture that gets painted is that this is exactly the way you and I should have died. This is the way that God views our sin, is that he is going to take us and kill us and crucify us and then pour out his wrath on us. And if you don't see the wrath of God, you don't see the cross appropriately. And so Jesus lives the sinless life and he is delivered up on a cross and he is crucified and he dies the most painful death in human history. But not only that, he is then taken down from the cross and he's buried in the tomb of a rich man. And then three days later, he doesn't stay dead, but he raises up from the dead. And he raises up from the dead as the sign sealed stamp that God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the Messiah who's gonna conquer death. And he resurrects not only for himself, but also to lead a host of captives free from their own sin. And when he resurrects, he's showing us not only is sin going to be crucified on that cross, but also we're going to be born again to a new life with him. And so then he lives this life and his whole mission on this earth is to reconcile lost sinners to himself. Jesus is what we would call the friend of sinners. He says, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light and I will give you rest. And he is going to come between us. And it says in scripture that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. We are not the mediators between God and ourselves. In fact, we need a mediator because we in ourselves are sinful. And so Jesus comes to be that mediator. Religion doesn't come to be that mediator. Our good works don't come to be that mediator. There is only one mediator between God and man who is the man Christ Jesus. And he satisfies the wrath of God so that there is therefore now, as Romans says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He then condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us when we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit of God. And therefore we have victory over sin and we have victory in the spirit of who God is. But not only that, he ascends to the right hand of God and eventually he ascends to the right hand of God and he is reigning on the right hand of God right now so that the kingdom of God can come into this earth and invade. And we are then messengers of this message, this gospel, this truth. And so now 2,000 years later, let's not start diluting it because we're worried it's going to stop working. We have to deliver the truth of the gospel with every single punch that Jesus delivered the truth of the gospel with. We have to have every single victory that he did. And if you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't die in a neutral place with God. You die where Jesus died. You die in the way that he died. He died on behalf of those who would be justified. 
And if you don't call on him, if you don't recognize him, if you don't throw your sins before him, he will not save you. He will let you experience exactly what you want to experience, which is you want to try to get yourself into heaven with your own good works. And there is not one thing that we could do that's good enough. In fact, if we all left here today, we sold everything we had, we moved to a foreign country, and we just served people for the rest of our lives, we would still die and go to hell at the end of it. There is no good work that's going to save us because we need not only a good track record, we need a perfect track record. And I promise you, you don't want to measure up your track record against God's standard because it's not going to work. In fact, if you took every righteous person on earth and you measured them up against God's standard, they would still be found wanting. And so you don't want to try to play your hands against God. You want to have God save you from your sins. You want to fall before him and confess yourself as a sinner. And you don't want to do this just one time when you're converted to faith. You want to daily die to self and pick up your cross and follow after Jesus and daily confess your sins before him because he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. So this is the message that we in the church are at risk of diluting and I don't want us to be at risk of diluting that. And I want you guys to be able to go out into the world and share this gospel with people. Not hear it here, not bring your friends here so that they can hear the gospel when they need to, but you should be able to out there go out and have spiritual warfare with the powers of darkness. You should be able to go out there and fight the good fight. But this is what we are guilty of losing. And so we're going to come now back to the text in verse 7. And we're going to see what is the fault of the priests and what is the specific condemnation on the priests when they dilute this message. What happens to them? And it says in verse 7, the more they increase, the more the priests increase, the more they sinned against me. And I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and they are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not be satisfied. And they shall play the whore, but they will not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away their understanding. You see, the priests are primarily guilty of the more they increase in both number and in wealth, Right? The reason they're increasing in number and wealth is because more people want to join the priesthood. More people want to give money to these priests because they're telling them exactly what they want to hear. The kings are employing these priests because the priests are telling the kings exactly what they want to hear. The wicked kings we outlined in the first few chapters of Hosea. But not only that, he says they feed on the sin of my people. If you were to offer a sin offering to God in the, ta- in the temple, the priests would eat a portion of that sin offering. This was actually the way in which they sustained themselves. So this offering was given to the priests, essentially like, a way of paying them for their service. But the priests, rather than uh, having sorrow for the sin of the people, they actually rejoice in the sin of the people because that means they get more stuff. So they rejoice and they feed on the sin of the people and they are greedy for the iniquity of the people because they want the people to sin because that means they get more stuff. And today we have preachers who don't call people to live better lives or live more holy and show them the true way in which you can experience victory. They say, go out and do better and try harder. And if you can't do that, pay me more money, have more faith, and go out and do better. And they continue to feed on this vicious cycle of people sinning, but they don't actually show them the way in which they can have power over sin. In Colossians 2.23, it says, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting this self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. They are of no value. Religion cannot save you from your sin cycle. Behavior modification cannot save you from your sin cycle. Only the gospel can do that. But these priests don't share that with them. They keep them in this vicious cycle of sin. And then in Romans 16, 18, we know these false teachers are marked by such things. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And these priests, they deceive the people. They tell them exactly what they want to hear, and they actually never call the people out. And then this continues in another description in the New Testament by Paul in Philippians 3, Verse 19, he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. These false teachers are marked by fleshly indulgence. Their end will be destruction. Their God is not me, it's not Jesus, it's their belly, their only fleshly desires. And their glory, what they think they're doing in religious affection towards God, is actually their shame. They are actually heaping shame upon themselves for what they do, pretending that it is glorious. And then he continues with this in verse 9. He says, they shall be like people, like priests. Now he's going to flip back from the priests. Everyone's going to actually suffer this condemnation because although the priests are chiefly guilty of this responsibility, the people are also following them. The people are also tolerating this type of worship. 
So like people, like priests, I will punish them for their ways. And the way in which he punishes them, if you read in verse 10, is exactly to attack their God. Remember, their God is their bellies. And so he says they're going to eat, but they won't be satisfied. And they're going to play the whore, but they won't multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord. And instead, they cherish whoredom, wine, new wine, and this takes away their understanding. God strikes them at the very heart of what they desire. And today, you have people who are wealthy, who desire to have power, who desire to attain career success and fame. And you know what God does? He lets them have exactly that. And it doesn't satisfy them. And they come to the end of themselves and they say there must be something more. And the exact condemnation of God on these people is he gives them exactly what they want. He gives them exactly what they desire. And they will not be satisfied by the pursuits that they pursue. But this cycle of indulgence not only hurts them, but it also eventually dulls their senses. And it says they cherish whoredom, wine, new wine, and all of these things together takes away their understanding. It strips their ability to be sensitive to a knowledge of God. Because the more they indulge in this path, the more they, they wound their spirit, the more they wound their souls. And so eventually they're sinning so much that they don't even recognize certain things as sin anymore. They become dull and they become senseless and they become uh, diluted to the ability to actually be sensitive to the truth of God. And then in verse 12, we see how far this has fallen. It says that my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. We're talking right now, guys, about the people of Israel who saw God part the Red Sea in front of them, led them in the wilderness, feeding them day in and day out with manna from heaven, who then gives them into the promised land. And not only that, but he lets them conquer the promised land. And then when they rebel against him, he sets up a king before them and lets them be the most prosperous nation in the Middle East, so much that people from all around are giving them all these goods and gifts, and they build the tabernacle with these gifts. And they build this beautiful stuff to the Lord. We're talking about this people that God has been so faithful to, They're worshiping pieces of wood and praying to them. This is how far Israel has fallen. Pieces of wood are idols. This is the way that which they would fashion idols. In fact, idols weren't even valuable enough to be made out of precious metal. They would make it out of wood and then they would coat it in metal. This is how little they valued this God, that they made it out of wood, not even the most precious materials that they had. At least in Exodus, when they worship the golden calf, the whole thing is made of gold. But at this point, they're down to just wood with a coating. This is how far they've fallen. And not only that, but their walking staff gives them oracles. This is one way in which they would try to supernaturally divine what God is teaching them. Their walking staff could also be translated, they look to sticks for oracles. In the book of Jonah, you get such an account where the sailors are trying to figure out who's guilty before God and they cast sticks and it points to Jonah. And so this is one way in which they would divine the supernatural. And so here they're guilty, not other people, not pagan sailors are doing this. The people of Israel are guilty of doing this. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. And this spirit of whoredom leads all the people of God astray, away from where they should be, and they leave their God to play the whore. And then he continues in verse 13 with the depravity of their worship. And he says that they sacrifice on the tops of mountains, and they sacrifice burnt offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because the shade is good. The reason they worship in the places they worship is not because they think they're holy places, not because they think these places are of particular value. They worship there because they can worship and sit in the shade and eat their food because the shade is good. This is why they're picking the place of worship, because it's more comfortable for them to worship there. They go to these places that are local, they're close. It's not where God commanded them to worship, so they're not going to travel all the way. That's kind of inconvenient. They're going to offer up offerings to places where they can also sit in the shade and watch it happen, and, you know, just make a day out of it. And this is how far they've fallen. And so then this depravity continues, and he says then, therefore, your daughters will play the whore, and your brides will commit adultery. Sin has natural consequences. Sin has natural consequences. And God, in his judgment, sometimes doesn't have to do anything additional to give us judgment. He just has to let us go and experience the full weight of the sin that we do. And so in this case, the people who leave God, he says, you know what, I'm going to remove my restraining hand from them in such a way that even their daughters are being these cult prostitutes now. He's going to say, if you want the people of Israel to commit prostitution, you know what, your daughters are going to be doing these things. And your brides are going to be adulterers towards you because they're not going to fear me. The sin has natural consequences. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 28, I'll just read it for you. We see this exact same thing. And he says, Therefore God gave them up in lusts, in their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature 
rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They gave God up and God in return gives them up. He gives them up to exactly the full depravity of what they're going to experience. Not letting them just fully realize the sin, but letting them fully realize the sin and everything that comes with it. You see, God created the world perfectly and he knows how to live in it better than anyone else. And we walk into this world and we say, we know better than you who made the world. Let's do it our own way. And then we get surprised when things don't work out the way we predict they work out, right? God says, wait and don't sleep with someone until you're married to them. And we, in the, in the new uh, world, we say, you know what? That's not, we have to try it out. We have to see if that person's compatible with us first before we can be sure to marry them. And the divorce rate between those who are waiting for marriage and those who actually live together before marriage is astronomically different. And those who wait till marriage have a much better chance of success down the line, which is very counterintuitive to our minds. But we don't understand how the world works. We have a very finite, brief understanding of how the world works. God made this thing, and he told us how to live in it. And he, sin has natural consequences. And he's going to continue with these natural consequences in verse 14. And he says, not only are your daughters and your brides going to do this, but in verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. Because how could he punish them if their fathers and their husbands are the very ones who are failing to lead them in the correct way? The people who are responsible are ultimately the leaders. And so first it started with the priests, but now it's moved on to the fact that although the daughters and the wives are going to be unfaithful, he's actually going to plant the blame squarely on the husbands and the fathers who have abated their responsibility. So why would he punish the daughters and the, and the wives when the husbands and the fathers are the ones who are responsible? Not that the wives aren't responsible, not that the daughters aren't responsible, but they are feeling the effects of the sin ultimately that started with their husbands, ultimately that started with their fathers. He says, for the men themselves go aside and they sleep with these prostitutes and they sacrifice with cult prostitutes and people without understanding will come to ruin. Ultimately, this whole depravity cycle is going to come in the end to ruin. And then he's going to plead, starting in verse 15. He says, though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. What he's saying there is Judah, the southern kingdom, is at this point in time not fully guilty of the sins that Israel is guilty of. And so Hosea is going to say, although Israel, you want to you lay your own bed, you want to make your own destruction, please just don't dilute Judah as well. Don't mislead them. Don't lead them astray into your own sinful ways. And he says, enter not into Gil- Gilgal and go not up into Bethaven and swear not as the Lord lives. He's pleading with them, don't worship in these places where you're going to commit idolatry. Don't worship uh, in Bethaven and Gilgal. These are both places in which the, the Israelites would have worshiped because they were places of historical significance. Gilgal is where the new generation of Israelites in the promised land are first circumcised to sign, seal, and deliver the covenant promise of God. And they've now turned this into a place of idol worship. So he says, please don't go there. Please don't dilute my holy message. Don't dilute that location. And then he says, uh, don't go up to Bethaven. Bethaven is where he makes the promise with Isaac. And where Isaac actually builds up an altar to worship the Lord God because the Lord God reveals himself to him. And he says, please don't go there and please don't commit your adulterous acts in that holy and sacred place. And then he says, swear not as the Lord lives because in his covenant commandments, he says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. He's pleading with them. And he says, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed a lamb that is in a broad pasture? This relates back to the idea that we saw earlier, which is they are without bounds. They have no limits on what they do. And we're described plenty of times in scripture like sheep. And the thing about sheep is they need boundaries. They need to be in a closed, confined space, to be told where to go and where to eat. And the Lord is saying, can he now feed lambs that are in a broad pasture that have no bounds? How can he lead these lambs if they're just walked away from all the security he placed around them? How can he feed them? because they're just violating the very principles of what he's put in place to feed them. But then he continues in verse 17. He says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Because when their drink is gone, they give themselves up to whoring. And their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Ephraim is uh, the first time in Hosea that we're going to see now used several other times is an equivalent to Israel. Ephraim, you can just read it as Israel. It's just a poetic way to talk about them. But he says, Israel is joined to idols. And actually in the New Testament, Paul talks about don't sleep with cult prostitutes because don't you know that your body is a member of God? And if you are joined with prostitutes, is God's body joined with prostitutes? Is God's people now joined in idol worship? Like Ephraim is now 
joined in idol worship, not only joined in worship of the idols, but actually joined to those idols. So leave Ephraim alone. Leave Israel alone. Now he's talking to Judah. He says, leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring, and their rulers dearly love this shame. And when a wind has wrapped them in its wings, they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. They will, in the end, receive the just shame, the just condemnation, the just punishment for all of the sins that they're committing. So he's pleading with Judah, just because Israel looks like they're doing okay right now, don't follow them. Don't follow their paths. Eventually, this will be their destruction. Just because it looks good now, don't believe it. Eventually, their wine is going to be gone, and they're going to give themselves up to whoring. And they're going to love the shame that the whoring brings them. They're going to love the fact that they can glory in their sin. And if you think about this today, there are so many people who know what God says in his commandments and who glory and boast in the sin that they commit, who brag about how many people they can sleep with or how much they had to drink the previous week. They glory in the shameful things that they ought not to do, but they glory in it. Don't follow after those kinds of people. Don't, don't stay away from them. Don't be joined to that idol, idolatrous worship. So by way of application, there's really one thing that is the most pressing in this passage, which is the indictment on the leaders. So by way of application, I think the most fitting thing is to make a statement, which is to hold your leaders accountable to teach the word faithfully. And so in order to know what that looks like, I'm going to turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So I'm going to turn over there, if you would turn with me. Second Timothy chapter four, verse one to five. This is Paul writing to Timothy in a place where Timothy would have had a local church to serve and would have had a local body of believers he would witness to and minister to. And he says these words to young Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word, Be ready, in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And I'm going to pause there for a second. You notice what he said? He said, preach the word and be ready to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. He's not saying be ready to tell them what they want to hear. Don't be ready to tell them comfortable things. Be ready to reprove, rebuke, and exhort these people to live more holy, to live like Christ. And he continues in verse 3, because what is the contrast to that kind of preaching? He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. And the thing about Timothy is he didn't do that charge in a bubble. He had a local congregation that he was serving and faithfully teaching and preaching the word to. And, God, and Paul charges him and God charges him and Jesus charges him to faithfully shepherd the church. So by way of application, remember that cycle that Israel is guilty of. The leaders compromise, but also the people compromise and allow the leaders to do these things. So as a church, you can be very careful not to compromise on what kind of leaders you're comfortable with. If people start saying things that you know are not true, don't be afraid to call out those leaders. If they say things that are comfortable and only comfortable and they never exhort you to live any different and to be any different and to love God any better and to live more holy lives and to be more like Christ, you're not listening to gospel-centered preaching and teaching. Because remember what the gospel starts with. The gospel starts with the fact that we are actually not good enough in and of ourselves and we need something else. And so if the teaching always confronts you with that message, that's amazing because that gives you the opportunity to then respond and remind yourself of the gospel. There's nothing to be feared about that kind of teaching. There is something very dangerous, though, about teaching that never gets you to that place of confrontation because it comforts you and it woos you to sleep and eventually you become so dull and so unsensitive to the real truth of God's word that you've forgotten the knowledge of God altogether. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word for us today. Lord, I thank you for the writing of Hosea. I thank you for the writing of Paul. I thank you for your consistent revelation throughout all the scriptures, Lord. Lord, I pray for strength for the leaders of your church. I pray for Forrest and Tyler, for Max, for myself, for 
uh, pastors of churches in the Indianapolis area, Lord, that they would be faithful teachers of the word of God, that they would not compromise on truth for the sake of appeasing the itching ears of those who will eventually fall away. And Lord, I pray for your people and your bride that they would not settle for those who would fail to take care of them, that they would demand to be fed, that they would demand to be encouraged, that they would demand to be rebuked and strengthened. Lord, I pray that your bride would be one that is so powerful, so majestic, so beautiful in the end because they are fed on a well-nourished diet of your word and your truth. And Lord, I pray all of these things in your name. Amen.